there's no such thing as being too Jewish. Thank you very much. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Don Futterman, author of Adam Unrehearsed from Tel Aviv. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom, v'chag urim sameach, a happy holiday of lights. It's the third day of Hanukkah, which means tonight will be the fourth night of Hanukkah out of the eight nights and days of celebration and joy of lights and latkes. There's an interesting history to this holiday, and it's controversial. In fact, Hanukkah has a rather dark past, no pun intended, on the Festival of Lights, that is more complex and ambivalent than that of almost any other, maybe any other, Jewish festival. The historical events Hanukkah commemorates are reasonably well known. In the 2nd century BCE, roughly 2200 years ago, Israel was part of the Seleucid Empire, created after Alexander the Great's early death. His general Seleucus built this empire. In that powerful kingdom, the Greek Hellenistic culture, with its theaters, bathhouses, gymnasia, and pagan temples, was encroaching steadily on all local cultures, including the Jews. Generally, however, the relationship remained relatively peaceful. To set the scene for the explosion that led to Hanukkah, Greek-style towns and cities were founded right next to older Jewish towns and cities. The Greeks and the Hellenized locals who lived in those Greek towns wrestled at the gym, bathed in hot and cold public baths, did business in the Agora, attended performances and concerts in theaters and amphitheaters, studied and argued philosophy and poetics, and of course worshipped a plethora of pagan gods in their multiple temples. Jews who lived near them in the Jewish urban areas bathed in private mikvahs, shopped in the small stores near their homes or at the city gates, ate kosher food, studied Torah and Tanakh Bible, attended the Beit Midrash, the house of study, and made pilgrimages to the great temple in Jerusalem three times a year for the festivals. And, of course, we Jews worshipped just one God. The two communities, Greek and Jewish, coexisted uneasily, but peacefully. However, the egotism that seems to accompany every authoritarian position of power in the world intervened. A king of the Seleucid Empire, sometimes pronounced Seleucid, by the way, Antiochus IV Epiphanes Antiochus, decided it wasn't enough just to rule. He also needed to be literally worshipped as a god, as his idol Alexander the Great had been. He deified himself, called himself God, and insisted that his subjects all worship him in addition to their own gods. This should sound familiar from our experience of authoritarians in the contemporary world. In Israel, known as Judea then, 
a small but strategically located backwater of this great Seleucid empire, decrees went out requiring statues of Antiochus Antiochus to be erected in every town in Israel, particularly that a great statue of the king was to be placed in the holy temple in Jerusalem. Well, the Jews reacted with shock. Most Jews, however, cowed by the power of the strongest army in the world at the time, just complied. But not everyone did. Soon Antiochus moved to force those Jews to do so, that is, to worship him. He promulgated hostile laws, sent his military to enforce them. In order to suppress the outlawed religion of Judaism, the teaching of Torah was banned on punishment of death. Circumcision and kosher slaughter were made capital crimes. You would be executed for doing them. In particular, instruction of children in the ways of our Jewish ancestors was absolutely forbidden. Laws were enforced by squads of soldiers armed with spears, swords, shields, and bows and arrows. To emphasize the religious subjugation of the Jews, unkosher pigs were sacrificed on the altar of the temple itself. The lights of the sacred menorah, the candelabrum, were extinguished. Judaism looked like it too was about to be extinguished. At first, many Jews simply complied with Antiochus' demands. His army was strongest in the world at that time. There seemed to be no alternative But finally, the oppressed people, the Jews of Israel, could stand it no more. At this time of greatest darkness, one family rose up, refusing to bow to the idol of Antiochus, a truly evil emperor. Led by Matityahu Mattathias, an aged priest, the Hasmonean family struck back. Their rebellion began in an obscure town in the Judean hills called Modin, with the overthrow of a tax collector, huh, and a refusal to bow down to the statue of the king. The Hasmonean family, soon to be led by the most dynamic of Mattathias' sons, Judah, began a guerrilla war, hiding in caves and forests, striking at the better-armed and more numerous Seleucid armies. The careful campaign gathered strength over time. In spite of the use of battle elephants and all the military advantages that seemed to lie with the occupying power, the Jews, led by Judah the Hammer, that's Maccabee in Hebrew, gained the upper hand. The Syrian Greeks were driven from the main part of Israel, from Jerusalem itself, and finally from the temple, which was cleansed and prepared and turned again into its proper condition for sanctification, holiness. That rededication took place at a great feast of thanksgiving, what we call today Hanukkah. The lights of the Hanukkah menorah remind us of the great miracle of our salvation from religious persecution, of the triumph of the few over the many, the weak over the strong, the believers over those who tried to destroy us. Now, the controversial part. This remarkable victory of Hanukkah was celebrated with an eight-day festival of thanksgiving. But the leaders of that great victory, the Maccabee family, known as Hasmoneans, were corrupted by power. When the Jews decided which holidays should be celebrated fully, Hanukkah gradually diminished in religious importance, mostly because the guys who started it, well, they turned out to be kind of bad kings. That's true, Hanukkah was a minor festival for Jews until the last century, the 20th, when it made a huge comeback. It is now the second most widely celebrated Jewish festival after Passover, Pesach, 
or perhaps tied with it by now, maybe even even past it. That's okay, because Hanukkah remembers an incredibly important set of events. And it's a wonderful festival. You know, there's that miracle of the lights we learned about, oh, six, seven hundred years after Hanukkah. Anyway, it's lots of fun. Part of the fun is parody Hanukkah songs to play us in this morning from 613, a Taylor Swift-themed irolution rendition of Hanukkah. Candles glow just like the menorah in days of old. Miracles drove the mighty Greeks out of our home. One vial of oil, it lasted for eight days. Hanukkah story, that's when we say That was 613's Taylor Swift-style parody for Hanukkah. You can't hear Taylor Swift at Beit Simcha's Lighting the Way celebration, nor can you see Travis Kelsey there. But you can hear wonderful Hanukkah music tonight with wonderful food, drink, music, and stories by renowned storyteller Jim Weiss. That's tonight, Sunday, December 10th at 5 p.m., a fabulous celebration. Join us. Go to Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org to sign up. Our guest this morning will join us from Tel Aviv. His new coming-of-age novel is, frankly, terrific. It's called Adam Unrehearsed. Find out what makes it so when Don Futterman joins us in just a moment here on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Light the way for Hanukkah and Beit Simha's great 5th anniversary celebration. It's the best Hanukkah celebration in Arizona and possibly the world. Storyteller Jim Weiss, internationally known to generations of adults and children for his wide-ranging body of fantastic stories, world history, classic literature, children's and biblical stories, will share his storytelling talents at Lighting the Way. Congregation Beit Simha's 5th anniversary and Hanukkah celebration, Sunday, December 10th at 5 p.m. at 12111 North LaJoya at Tangerine. Beit Simha at La Choya. Catalina Catering will provide outstanding food, including gourmet latkes. There will be wine, bubbly, great music by the High Five, Hanukkah candle lighting, and a magnificent birthday cake to mark five years of growth, learning, and community. Everyone is invited to join in the festivities celebrating rededication and success for Tucson's newest and fastest-growing congregation and the only synagogue in the Northwest. Tickets and sponsorships are available at BaitSimHaTucson.org. That's BaitSimHaTucson.org. Or by sending a check to Beit Simha at 5501 North Oracle, Suite 125 in Tucson at 85704. Call 520-276-5675 for more information. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish our guest this morning. Don Futterman is the author of the new novel, Adam Unrehearsed, which 
I think it's terrific, maybe because it feels a little bit like my life when I was younger. I'm not quite sure. Don lives in Tel Aviv. He's been a columnist for Haaretz, written for the Daily Beast, uh, and for the last 11 years has been a co-host of TLV1's The Promised Podcast. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Good morning. So just briefly, how you do it in Tel Aviv? This has not exactly been the easiest couple of months in Jewish history. No, no, it, it's it's very hard here because of the uh, the sadness of the losses, the shock of what happened on October 7th, and of course the soldiers who are being killed since then. Almost everyone here knows somebody directly who was murdered uh, and then or has fallen since then or both. So that's tough. You know, we're trying to encourage each other. Uh, there's a tremendous outpouring of support from the community, from civil society, uh, and, and incredible rate of volunteering. And people re-enlisting in the army. My own son cut short his uh, exchange student program in Australia to come back and volunteer to go into reserve duty in the army. And there's just many, many stories like that. I want to um, note that, and maybe this is a connection to get into beginning to talk about Adam unrehearsed. The rise of anti-Semitism around the world has been a little bit shocking, particularly here in America, to some of us, um, having seen it decline for a long time and rise again. Your book deals with quite a lot of anti-Semitism. Um, tell us about that a little. Well, in the in the novel, Adam Miller is a 12-year-old boy in New York in 1970, and it's his preparation year. He goes to public school. He's got a very mixed group of friends. And he, I think, is, uh, you know, like I felt when I was a kid, we felt totally accepted, completely American, part of the society. We uh, never really encountered anti-Semitism and felt that our parents' anxieties or their concerns that we keep a low profile, that we uh, never embarrass ourselves in front of non-Jews in public, were exaggerated. And, and part of what he discovers in the course of the novel is that there, the anti-Semitism is still out there, but at the same time, to keep it in perspective, because by and large, the American Jewish story, I think then, and even today, even though there is a lot of uh, hostile expressions, is an incredible success story of uh, acceptance and integration. So he encounters it really for the first time personally, and it shocks him. Uh, and that that's one of the triggers for events in the novel. And he encounters several mentor figures, his father, his older brother, his teacher, his cantor, who all have different attitudes towards and, and all of whom uh, take it uh, seriously, but see it as a, a more or less of a threat or as a nuisance and are trying to help him keep things in perspective as well. It's a terrific novel. We'll talk much more with Don Futterman. The book is called Adam Unrehearsed. When we come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in the Catalina Foothills and Northwest Tucson especially, celebrates a great array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha has created a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in Northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area. Area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. And of course, Hanukkah menorah lighting every night, plus all kinds of great Hanukkah programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website. 
BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in person in our sanctuary. Call 520-276-5675. Religious school is available for school-aged children or grandchildren. Join us in our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation, and teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org to sign up. Hanukkah is here. Celebrate every night with us on our Facebook page with our traditional menorah lighting and some untraditional songs. Join us at Beit Simcha tonight when we celebrate our fifth anniversary on the fourth night of Hanukkah, Sunday, December 10th, tonight, 5 p.m., Lighting the Way, a fabulous festive evening of food, music, stories, candles, songs, and joy, featuring internationally renowned storyteller Jim Weiss. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Come in person every Friday night and Saturday morning, Friday night, in person at 6.30 p.m. or on our Facebook page. Saturday, Shabbat morning, Torah study at 9 a.m., services at 10 a.m., all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. Facebook page, Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson, is also available for musical services. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. You can access those through BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. Our religious school is available in person and on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, religious school, Torah Tykes programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation, high school programs, array of Adult Education Academy courses, wonderful ones, taught live and on Zoom and all of our services in person and on Facebook. Go to B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson, Beit Simcha Tucson.org or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Beit Simcha Tucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest growing and warmest Jewish congregation and community in all of Southern Arizona. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, Kvetch or Kvel, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O JewishRadio at gmail. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, toojewishradio.com, streaming us from there, downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store as very popular Jewish podcasts, top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, a couple of hundred thousand downloads on Podbean and on Spotify. Post a rating, review to Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. 
Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom, and Chag Chanukah Sameach. Good morning, Rabbi, and happy Chanukah to you, too. So a a not-so-cheerful subject, but an important one. We started talking about last week, which was um, genocide and the way the word is used. Let's talk about the fact that while people are attaching it to Gaza, that's actually not a genocide, and yet there are many places around the world where actual genocides are being perpetrated right now. Right, and the question that imposes itself on all this is, why do these other real clear genocides not get very much press attention? And the answer may be that it's complicated or involves people that we don't know much about. But one big example, and it's been going on for quite a while, at least 10 or 20 years, maybe longer, is the Uyghurs in Western China. The Uyghurs are a Turkic-speaking minority, almost entirely Muslim, who didn't really assimilate into mainline Chinese culture. So the Chinese government, in its wisdom, set up concentration camps, although they call them re-education camps. To the best of my knowledge, there are no gas chambers, although lots of Uyghurs have been eliminated. They've been exterminated by gunshots, firing squads, whatever. Murdered. And others have just been, quote-unquote, re-educated to make them into, quote-unquote, true Chinese. So this involves... Not a tiny or obscure group of people, but most of the people in Western China, the area that used to be called East Turkestan, and it roughly corresponds to Xinjiang province today, but it's a little bit beyond that, and it is heart-wrenching. And yet, how often do you read about that in the newspapers? How often do you hear any human rights groups complaining about it? It's very rare. Uh, and it's fascinating because, you know, as a Jew, whenever Jews are endangered, we care, we talk about it, wherever in the world it happens. And uh, we've noticed how uh, that isn't true for Christians. For example, when Saddam Hussein was slaughtering Christians, when ISIS was really committing genocide on entire populations of Syrian Christians, nobody said anything to speak of here. Right. And the same is true for Muslims. The Muslim world is outraged at what happens to the Palestinians, but somehow the Uyghurs who have lost, and I never know if I pronounce that word correctly, maybe that's part of it, have lost um, orders of magnitude more people being murdered. Millions. By, literally millions being murdered by the communist regime or whatever you call the dictatorial regime in, in China, the totalitarian regime in China. And you just don't hear about it. It's not showing up at the UN every day. Right. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, and another example is 
there are all these civil wars in Africa that are really ethnic genocidal wars in Su- one Sudan, tribal right? group trying to eliminate another not to rule over or dominate but eliminate and that is the textbook definition of genocide and there's probably somewhere between half a dozen and a dozen of these things going on in sub-saharan africa we never hear about that you know it fascinated me that sudan kind of fell apart around the same time as the hamas perpetration of the horrible atrocity on israel and all of and then the bombing of gaza Far more people were dying well, in Sudan Well, you mean every Sudan day. fell apart again. Yeah, Sudan re-fell apart, sure. It's, it's actually now two or three different countries. Right, South There's Sudan. There's no longer a whole Sudan with Khartoum as its capital. But the, the, in the war, and it was, it was definitely ethnic tribal massacres taking place, far more people were dying in Sudan every day than even the figures that were coming out of the Hamas ministries in Gaza. You didn't see anything about it. Right. I'm not saying it's good ever when civilians are dying no one would say that i hope but people should be careful how they use the word genocide absolutely and i mean we can look closer to home in the balkans in the 1990s there was an attempt at genocide whitewashed of course the perpetrators played the victim and recently although they didn't kill everyone. They just forced them to leave their homes and their homeland. The Azerbaijanis Azerbaijan. versus the yeah. Armenians in the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. It's like the Azerbaijanis don't want any our ethnic Armenians in their country. So rather than just shoot them all, they simply Kicked appropriated their houses and their lands and sent them on their merry way. Yeah. Well, Not a lot of street prote- protests against that. I didn't see any in America, actually. And none in England either, where they're specializing in them. Tom, thanks so much. We will talk next week. Okay. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. In the prep room, Moshe is getting really anxious about his imminent surgery. His wife, Sarah, asks him, what's the matter? Why are you so worked up? He answers, I heard one of the nurses say, it's a very simple operation. Don't worry. I'm sure you'll be all right. She was just trying to comfort you, says his wife. What's so frightening about that? And Moshe answers, she was talking to the surgeon. That was the old Jewish joke of the week, special feature of two Jewish. Just for you, you should live and be well and find a good Jewish surgeon. And now a word of Torah. In this week's portion of Miketz, we're in the midst of the fabulous story of Joseph, now shorn of his technicolor dream coat and locked away in an Egyptian prison. Dreams play a central role and not for the first time in Genesis. Not for the first time in this Joseph story either. In Miketz, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, dreams a famous dream. Seven fat cows emerge from the Nile River. They are eaten by seven skinny cows. Then seven fat ears of grain are devoured by seven lean ears of grain. What could it mean? None of the Egyptian king's brilliant advisors and counselors can help. In desperation, he turns to a forgotten Hebrew prisoner who once helped his chief wine steward, that is his bartender, when he was in jail with him. 
Joseph is dragged from prison, cleaned up, brought to the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. The young Hebrew hears the dream and correctly interprets it, prophesying seven years of plenty to be followed by seven years of famine. Giving full credit to God as his only source of insight, Joseph helps the Pharaoh to save Egypt, and things go well for both him and Egypt. He rises to great prominence, second in command of the whole country, and the Pharaoh's power is multiplied while his people are saved from destruction. Joseph marries and has two children, but oddly, his great success, his fame throughout Egypt and his new family aren't quite enough for him. He misses his father, left behind in Canaan in Canaan. He pines for his younger brother Benjamin, only living reminder of their dead mother, Rachel. He never expects to see his father and full brother again. Joseph misses his Hebrew identity too. I guess you can take the boy out of Canaan, but you can't really take the Canaan out of the boy. And then in a plot twist worthy of our finest novelists, his brothers are compelled by famine to come down to Egypt to buy bread. Suddenly the same characters who beat him and sold him into slavery are completely in his power. What an amazing opportunity for revenge. Joseph seems primed to take advantage of it. He teases and torments his brothers. Joseph, fully aware of their identity, they completely ignorant of his. What will happen? As the Torah portion concludes, we're left wondering which way it will all go. Next week, we'll get the answer. This week, however, the issue is delineated clearly. How will an assimilated Jew respond to direct pressure to hide his identity? Just as the Jews in the days of the Maccabees struggled with tremendous pressure to accept cultural subjugation and give up their Judaism, Joseph, too, struggled with hiding his identity or admitting it in public. In a season in which the majority culture can overwhelm us with songs, foods, and the religious trappings of their festival, at a time when anti-Semitism is rearing its ugly head all over our nation and our world, we Jews, too, sometimes struggle to assert our pride in our own Jewish identities. May we learn from the lessons of Joseph and the Maccabees that Jewish identity must be asserted proudly and with commitment in all times and seasons. You know, like now. When we come back in a moment, our guest this morning, Don Futterman, shares how his own experiences shaped and did not shape his outstanding new novel, Adam Unrehearsed. Hear all about it when we return in a moment on Too Jewish. We continue with our Too Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Norman Lear, the Jewish TV pioneer behind the iconic comedies of the 1970s and 80s that helped bring social commentary and black characters into the mainstream, died last week at the age of 101. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days. The 
decorated creator of All in the Family, Maud, Sanford and Son, Good Times, One Day at a Time, The Jeffersons, and Different Strokes, as well as a host of other groundbreaking TV sitcoms like Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Norman Lear lived and worked through just about every era of Hollywood comedy. A lifelong liberal, in part, he said, because he heard the anti-Semitic preacher Father Coughlin on the radio as a child and wanted to do something to fight anti-Semitism. Lear received a host of awards, six primetime Emmys, two Peabody Awards, the National Medal of Arts, the Kennedy Center Honors, and the Golden Globe Carol Burnett Award. He was a member of the Television Academy Hall of Fame. (laughs) This was an act of God. An act of God? That's right, you atheist, you. We shut down early today because there was a power cut. Oh, well, then that wasn't God. That was an act of Con Edison. Well, who do you think runs Con Edison? Norman Lear was born July 27, 1922 in Connecticut to Jewish parents of Russian and Ukrainian ancestry. Lear celebrated his bar mitzvah, but later described himself as culturally Jewish as I could be, proud to be Jewish, but I'm not a religionist of any kind. When Lear was nine, his father went to prison for three years for his part in a fraudulent get-rich-quick scheme. His mother sent her son to live with relatives he barely knew in Brooklyn. Lear returned to Connecticut to finish high school, later went to Emerson College in Boston for a little bit, but dropped out, joined the U.S. Air Force during World War II. He flew 52 combat bombing missions over Europe when he wasn't entertaining fellow airmen with his jokes and stories. Norman Lear moved to L.A. after the war to work in public relations, then transitioned into writing comedy. He and a partner were the principal comedy writers for Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin in the budding television business, a business Lear effectively conquered in the 1970s. Norman Lear partnered with Bud Yorkin for 15 years and with talent agent Jerry Perinchio. He and Perinchio's company was called TAT Communications. That stood for the Yiddish phrase, Tuchus Aventish. Get somebody to translate it for you, not me. After two pilot shows were turned down about a comedy show featuring a blue-collar bigot, his confused wife, rebellious daughter, and left-wing son-in-law, the third try got picked up by CBS. In its first year, 1971, All in the Family won a host of Emmys in spite of bad ratings. By the second year, it was the number one show on television, a spot it held in America for five years. That's when people really did watch, you know, network television. Norman Lear created spinoff shows, Maud and Sanford and Son and a host of others. Beginning in the 70s, he also donated large sums to progressive causes. In 1980, he founded People for the American Way, an organization aimed at countering the influence of the Christian religious right in politics. He was particularly active in liberal politics as a counterweight to the moral majority. He was part of the Jewish so-called Malibu Mafia that helped fund a number of political projects and campaigns. Norman Lear got his own documentary in 2016 and a Kennedy Center honor, as well as just about every other award available under the sun. Yet, even as he notched the century mark of life, he continued to work, 
co-hosting live in front of a studio audience at the age of 100, a series of TV specials in which celebrities recreate episodes of his old sitcoms. He executive produced the recent remake of his show One Day at a Time, as well as last year's documentary on Rita Moreno. What's going on, Ian? I guess Stretch must have been Jewish. Stretch Jewish with a name like Cunningham? Oh, Archie, what's in a name? A Jewish name ain't supposed to have no ham in it. Over time, Lear's many early projects, including Good Times, the first family show led by two black parent characters, were seen as a crucial bridge to wider acceptance of black stories in American pop culture. Though Good Times was criticized for what many perceived as an over-reliance on catchphrases and stereotypes, his follow-up show, The Jeffersons, gave American culture a robust and celebrated portrait of upwardly mobile black middle-class life. Well, we're moving on It's not that there had not been black people on TV before, said Rhonda Rasha Penrees, a black cultural critic, but black people had not been on television by the 70s in roles where who they were mattered as much to them as they did on Good Times and the Jeffersons. All in the Family, starring that lovable bigot Archie Bunker, brilliantly played by Carol O'Connor, has also been appraised as one of the earliest TV shows to deal with anti-Semitism in the U.S. Although Lear's intention to paint Archie's opinions as abhorrent backfired, many viewers, including U.S. President Richard Nixon, agreed with him. Lear's support for liberal causes lasted through, well, his whole life. Shortly after turning 100 last year, Donald Trump reiterated an argument he had made as president that American Jews endanger themselves by not supporting him. Lear quickly made headlines for calling Trump a horse's ass. Today, having recently turned 100, I read Donald Trump's appalling words about American Jews. And I am nine years old again, he tweeted, thinking about Father Coughlin. The phrase, a horse's ass, was an everyday expression when I was nine. It occurs to me again now. Lear had taken to Instagram at the age of 100 to reminisce in a video singing a bit from the classic tune That's Amore, recalling how he once worked for Dean Martin singing the same song during the Colgate Comedy Hour in the 50s. Reflecting on his life, Lear expressed gratitude for every moment. Living in the moment, the moment between past and present, present and past, the hammock in the middle of after and next, he said by way of advice, treasure it, use it with love. After 101 years, may Norman Lear rest in peace. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews round the world. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. 
We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, conservative, and orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning. Don Futterman is the author of a new novel, Adam Unrehearsed. He's also written some uh, Jewish kids' books in Hebrew, has a podcast, TLV1's The Promised Podcast, which he's been doing for 11 years. 10 years shorter than we've been doing Two Jewish, by the way, but hey, still pretty darn good. Um, it's been a columnist for Haaretz, written for the Daily Beast. And Beit Aliyah, tell us a little bit about your original decision to move to Israel, would you? Sure. I, I grew up in young Judea, so I was in a Zionist youth movement, and we always had a dream to come to Israel. And I, I came earlier, ended up making Aliyah in 1994, which was kind of the peak of the Oslo peace process. So we were filled with hopes that we were going to achieve peace in the Middle East, which tragically did not uh, happen that way. But when I actually came, because I, I met the woman who would be, end up becoming my wife, she was an Israeli studying in America, uh, and after she finished her master's degree, she said to me, uh, I'm going home. <laughs> Coming with me, or I'm going alone. I came with her, so I, I followed her to Israel, and I haven't regretted it. The story, uh, really, it's set around, as we said earlier in this show, your protagonist, Adam's bar mitzvah year, but it's quite a year. He moves into middle school, everything changes. How close is this to experiences that you had? Well, some of the incidents in the book are to re- taken directly from my life. None of them happened exactly the way they happened in the book. Some of them happened to other people that I knew, and a lot of it I made up. Uh, I mean, there are characters that are based on real people. Um, I did experience a, a mugging on the subway, which happened somewhat the way it's described in the book. Uh, and I did have a lot of run-ins with uh, street gangs, some of which were operating in, in inside of schools, others outside of school, which was an increasing phenomenon uh, in New York at the time. So some of those things were taken from my life, and a lot of the rest of it is imagined, or there are alternative scenarios to what actually happened. By the way, as a, as a cantor and a rabbi, I had to kind of cover what you said about cantors. Was there a can- who played a role in your life? Just have to ask. Yes, the, there was a cantor named Murray Bazian, Zifon Alivacha, who uh, I was very close to. And as happens to Adam, he adopted me as his special project, uh, which was uh, interesting because I didn't have a particularly good voice. Right. Uh, but he wanted me to learn the entire service, the whole tefillah, to lead everything. 
right. to read the entire Torah, not just the Haftarah. Uh, uh, so it, it was very ambitious for me, and I tried to live up to his expectations. But mo- but more importantly, we became very close during the process of, uh, of my bar mitzvah lessons with him. It's nice to see that and not just to see a cantor portrayed comically, which is seems to be the way it happens so often. I think that actually was one of my goals in the novel, was to show the institutions of American Jewish life, Hebrew school, junior congregation, membership in the synagogue, uh, Jewish summer camp, which I went to Camp Ramah and later to Tel Yehuda, the Yachidia camp, as positive institutions, because they're so often ridiculed in literature, and especially when I was growing up, they were almost exclusively ridiculed. And for me, there was they were very positive forces. It doesn't mean we didn't have our own criticisms, but but, you know, they, they played an incredible formative role in my life and in that of many of my friends. And, you know, I, I wanted to portray that in fiction, uh, and, and hopefully I managed to do that. I, I think you did. I, I also want to note that there's a kind of a changing cast of mentors all through the book, uh, because it, it's tough. Adolescence is hard, right? And he gets a lot of help. Again, was this something that came out of your life or just something that, that seemed important in showing uh, his journey? Well, it, w- it, was, it was both. Um, and I was trying to use the mentors in a way to show different uh, strands within the Jewish community and in the general community. Because again, he's, he's a public school boy. Many of his friends are not Jewish. Uh, many of his teachers are not Jewish. Though a surprising number turn out to be Jewish, which he didn't really know because they weren't very public about it. I think it's also because I was a younger brother, and there are only two of us, and I'm very close to my older brother, who's a conservative rabbi, uh, my brother Matt. I think I always felt comfortable with older figures, uh, whether those were camp counselors or, or teachers. And in elementary school, the vast majority of teachers in those days were women. And so the first male teachers I encountered really were in middle school. And that's interesting. I see that because I work with school programs in Israel. We have the same dynamic here as well. Uh, the elementary school is mostly women. And then afterwards, you have more of a mix. But I was a kid who felt comfortable with uh, adults and with, uh, with older older brother figures. So uh, I did draw on my experience with that, but I was also trying to have each of them kind of represent a different position or a different a different way of being in the world, actually, not just a different uh, political position. It is a weird question, but when you moved to Israel, did that become kind of like grown-up summer camp in a way? Not at all. <laughs> I think that's one of the common uh, misconceptions, misunderstandings, <laughs> yeah. misconceptions. But but I think for most of us, it's on an on an unconscious level. Uh, I mean, especially because I was in such Zionist summer camps. Both Ramah and Tel Yehuda were extremely Zionist, and and Tel Yehuda was uh, very explicitly encouraging us to make Aliyah uh, and to move to Israel. And and in a certain way. We had this longing that, you know, or this dream that Israel would be like summer camp. But of course, you know, summer camps, at least where I grew up in the East Coast, were often the country next to rivers or lakes and forests. And we were all city kids. So we were experiencing nature in a different way. And so Israel did replicate that because I have a much closer relationship to nature here than I did growing up in New York. But the rest of it is completely different. I, I remember it. During the Gulf War, I was in Seattle, Washington, and I was trying to explain to people who didn't really understand the geography, you know, where the Middle East was in relation to Seattle. Also, a lot of sailors were shipping out at the time, and people were very worried. Um, and, and I was missing, you know, I thought I was missing Israel, being in Israel. My brother was living there with their family. Uh, and at some point, I got a call to come work in summer camp again, where I hadn't worked in years, and I realized, oh, actually, that's what I'm missing. 
I'm missing summer camp. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to the East Coast and went, spent one more last summer in summer camp after a 10-year hiatus and met my wife there. So it was all it, it worked out. There's a lot of, as you noted, there's a lot of street gang stuff. Uh, a lot of this seems familiar to me. I grew up not too long after that, although on the West Coast, very different environment. But uh, we didn't have, well, this, the street street gang experience was a little different. That contrast is sharply drawn in the book, uh, but sometimes humorously. Certainly isn't funny when it happens to a kid. Uh, how did you tread that kind of fine line? Well, uh, you, you, there were different experiences, and some felt very dangerous. And, you know, there is one or two incidents described in the book that in real life were quite threatening. And others were things that as a city kid, you just learned to navigate. You know, you learned how you're supposed to behave. Uh, you know, when you could push back and when you just had to try to take it or uh, or avoid it. Because different gangs wanted different things from you. Some just wanted to hassle anybody who passed by. Some were, were trying to rob you or shake you down. Others wanted to get into a fight. And others just had their turf. And if you just walked across the street, nothing would happen. You know, it was a part of, I guess, becoming more savvy was learning how to navigate the, the, the risks uh, and manage those, those dangers. You know, looking back, it seems a little insane that we had to worry about these things. But again, there's always been more and less threatening groups of kids or bullies out to get other kids. But, but we saw kind of a proliferation of gangs getting more organized at that time. And that was very surprising because when we were younger, we didn't see it at all. So, it, you know, it's, I don't know if it's it, started to grow in the 70s or uh, just were becoming more aware of it because we were older so we were more of a target yeah i i think it was it was there because i know people grew up earlier and later and had similar experiences i i'll, I'll never forget uh, getting mugged by a kid you know and i only had a dollar and i told him i needed half of it for bus fare so uh we went to the bowling alley and i made change and i gave him change <laughs> Like as a city kid, you just got. You just, well, it was very clever, I think, for like a twelve-year-old or whatever I was. But um, it is very savvy. You know, uh, as a kid, you just learn how to figure this stuff out. Exactly. He he's in a special, like, gifted set of classes and programs, which you know also put a kind of mark on him uh, in the story. Undoubtedly realistic. He finds himself kind of on stage. Uh, tell us about that. Well, during the novel, uh, Adam falls in love with uh, acting and uh, the, his drama class is the, becomes the place where he feels the most at home. Uh, and eventually he's, he's staging a play and he gets very, very passionate and excited about it and involved in it. At the same time, he's also rehearsing for his bar mitzvah. So he's going to be on another stage. He's going he's to be on the bima in his, in his synagogue, in his shul. So he has these two experiences of preparing for performances that go on for much of the book. So part of it, I wanted to look a little bit at comparing those two ways of performing and, and how he was experiencing it, because it's very different if you're uh, trying to be the shaleh tibur, the messenger for the community leading the service, and you're singing, than if you're, you're acting a part in a play. But at the same time, you're on, you're on a stage, and people are looking at you, or looking to you, or following you. So for him, I think acting is a, is a way for kids to stand out, especially if kids are kids who are might be shy in social situations here they can get up on stage and be someone else and that's thrilling as uh, a young person i think it's one of the things that attracts 
actors who stay in the field, you know, throughout their lives, a chance to pretend to be someone else and experience those feelings and sometimes bigger and more dramatic feelings where more life and stake, more life and death stakes than you're usually dealing with in your daily life. Because uh, you're, uh, uh, you know, in a, a play or certainly a play he's staging, it's a very high stakes. I don't want to give too much away, but very high stakes situation that he's involved with. Performing in general always runs the risk of embarrassing yourself if it doesn't go well, if you make a mistake. And certainly that's one of the fears when he's going to get up in front of the of the congregation. That becomes his way of also connecting to to Jewish tradition, to being part of the congregation, to actually belonging, to get up there and be in the spotlight for those couple of hours at the bar mitzvah itself is a huge thing for him. You know, not necessarily spiritual, more, I would say, of a, of a communal experience and an individual experience. And as you said, he's a, he's a very good student. He's in the, what they used to call the special program, the SP in New York. Uh, and he's in the one that combined three grades into two. So it was the same group of kids are together all the time. They're together in almost all their class because nobody else is doing their track. So, so he's used to being singled out, but here he is where everyone can see him. And I think that's also... Part of the tension of adolescence is blending in and standing out. You know, it's when do you stand? When do you want to be seen? And when do you want to? When do you want to hide? Uh, and, and in what situations? Which connects to some of the other issues in the book. Of when do you stand up for yourself? And when do you not stand up? For yourself? It's a it's a really good read uh, with a great climax. By the way, I don't want to give anything away. Where can people go to find out more about you, Don, and more about Adam Unrehearsed? Well, they can go to the book's website, which is donfutterman.com, and it's uh, Futterman, F-U-T-T, two T's, not two D's, E-R-M-A-N.com, or you can find the book Adam Unrehearsed on Amazon or Barnes & Nobles or bookshop.org or wherever you order books from, and you can get an ebook version or you can get the hardcover. I hope a lot of your listeners will, will read it. I hope so, too. Uh, I, I think it's a good movie and not another silly one about a bar mitzvah, but, um, but a real one about a kid growing up. It's a very relatable, terrific book. Thank you so much. Okay, it's been a pleasure. When we come back on To Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest, get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be the terrific comedian Wendy Liebman, headlining the 31st annual Kung Pao Kosher Comedy in a Chinese Restaurant on Christmas show this year. She is quite wonderful, very funny, and maybe too Jewish. Please join us at Congregation Beit Simcha tonight for Lighting the Way, our wonderful Hanukkah celebration, or come every Friday night for services and Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m., Saturday morning, 2, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading and Kiddush, live in person and on our Facebook page. And join us tonight, again, December 10th. You can come at 5.30 for our virtual menorah landing, or better yet, come to Lighting the Way. As I noted, join me and my dad for our nightly virtual Hanukkah menorah lighting on the Beit Simcha Tucson Facebook page, 5.30 p.m. 
Our play out today is a new release from Yoram Gaon and the IDF singers from the Israeli army, a rendition of Naomi Shemer's song, You Won't Defeat Me That Fast, I Will Be Victorious, sung with active duty soldiers and sailors of Israel. Great message, this Hanukkah in a time of war. My friends, may you have a Chag Hanukkah Sameach, a happy holiday of Hanukkah, Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, even with all the latkes and jelly donuts, and a week we pray profoundly of justice and peace. <laughs> Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.